I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. I am a huge proponent of thinking that you should constantly be learning stuff, right? You know, you, you have to, not the whole like, you know, education, always be learning, but just just be curious. So your job's going to change, the world's going to change, things are going to be different. I personally just read a lot of random stuff. I'll be honest, it's not any particular thing. I am part of way too many communities, way too many email lists. I try to keep them down to be, you know, humanly possible. But if something strikes me, I see a, a white paper or a PDF in some community that seems attractive. I'm like, ah, that's interesting. I will speed read it. I'll look at it. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right. Well, this was fun. We had a really great episode and um, discussion just now with Joe Arillo, who is the SVP ops for Cyware. He joined the company about five years ago and was the first employee in North America. They've now got about 250 employees spread over seven countries. Uh, he reports into the CEO and he talks about what the different transition points have been like for the company as they've gone from raising a seed round when he joined to now a series C. They've raised just over $70 million talks about some of the growth challenges, talks about how to build collaboration and consensus and great uh, culture when you're working with people and teams in all these different countries, talks a lot about his ideas around hiring and interviewing key talent, and also how do you even fire or when to fire some of the core senior people on the team that might actually be causing problems that, um, and how to, how to be, be aware of those, talks about breaking down some of the silos um, just some really, really great insights around building a scaled company like this, how to go through the different due diligence rounds. I think you'll love this episode. You also want to check it out on our Second Command podcast YouTube channel. We'll see you on the inside. This is definitely an episode you're going to want to share as well. So, Joe, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Uh, thank you very much for having me here, Cameron. I'm uh, super happy to, uh, to have the conversation. Yeah, looking forward to chatting with you today. I would love to even start off with just kind of doing a deep dive on the company that you're running today. I think it kind of makes sense where the space that you're in to, to start there, and then we'll kind of go backwards into your career as well. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the company that you're running, Cyware, how you got involved with the organization, and really what Cyware does today? That sounds terrific. So Cyware is a cybersecurity company. Uh, we are now recently a Series C funded. The team has done a phenomenal job to get there. Uh, we focus in the, the threat intelligence space, essentially a cyber fusion and collective defense, where a combination of what you consider, you know, your sword tip and your IR merge together into a single pane of glass and allowing very large organizations with, you know, internal security teams to reduce silos, eliminate risk and, and collaborate 
through a combination of human and machine intelligence. So we're really trying to push the industry forward and be on that offensive from threats and try to protect more and kind of spread the uh, the protection uh, across you know the industries. For myself, I, I joined here back in 2019. They had just got their seed funding and were looking for the first uh, U.S. employee here. They had uh, one owner here in the U.S. and then one owner in India. And I had a team of India, you know, knocking out the product and kind of building out those first versions. And the, the ask was obviously vague. I think most, um, you know, operations folks receive the, the vague ask. We'd like you to build something. We don't know exactly what it is, but something. Just just go out and build something. I know I need something. I know I need help, you know, to sort of to your book. You know, every every operations person is a bit different. They're kind of trying to fill in that missing puzzle piece of the owner and kind of provide that, that second half. Uh, so uh, the aspects there was very interesting. They sound like they had a lot of uh, pre-work done that would have been beneficial to build upon. I, I said yes, uh, not knowing COVID was coming. That made things a little bit more challenging from the from the hiring perspective. Um, but the goal was simple. The goal was please build uh, the operational framework to be as strong as possible uh, to allow us to scale. So go find the best tools, the best processes, the best people, put them together, marry them, and make them work. And uh, a hefty ask, but it was fun. You know, we started to interview like crazy. Uh, at one point, we had about 100 recs open, which, you know, was, was laughable, just the, how many folks who were trying to, to fill in the, the various different disciplines, you know, partnered with many different organizations. Uh, the team worked incredibly hard internally. They, they actually able to receive their, their A and their B funding about six months apart in the heat of COVID during lockdown, which I still think is phenomenal from a, from a team point of view. And they've been uh, growing and scaling since then, uh, moved from two countries to seven countries hired individuals in more ways than it was physically possible in the beginning, uh, scaled to over, you know, 250 individuals, you know, procured over 170 apps, you know, from a procurement point of view, uh, full security compliance, you know, ISO, SOC 2, FedRAMP ready, um, all the bells and whistles, you know. So we've been uh, touching and prodding and trying to mature things ever since and just trying to keep that vision of, you know, trying to create excellence wherever we can. If I was to ask somebody to please give me like an overview of their company in two minutes, you just crushed it. This is like the format that I want every guest going forward to use. We've had about 330 guests on our Second Command podcast. I think that was literally the most succinct, but also I I kept writing down questions and you just kept giving me the answers to each of the questions. It was like perfectly done. Uh, I'm honored. (laughs) Yeah, no, really, really. So I've got I've got a bunch of things I want to dive in on there as well. One of the things that you mentioned, you know, being the first employee in the United States and then a big team in India begs the question, where is the company based? Where is the, the kind of leadership team or the head office of the organization? We have leadership in both countries, um, but primarily we'd be considered a, a U.S. company uh, that has an Indian subsidiary. But uh, we do have uh, executive leadership on both sides, uh, which actually helps, I think, in terms of, of guiding and preparing the mission and ensuring that there's less dangling parts and some other relationships might sort of create in an environmental situation. And you said a, an Indian subsidiary or a Canadian subsidiary? Indian. Indian. Okay. But was the team originally out of India that hired you in the United States or was the team a U.S. company, but you were the first, you know, employee post the founders? Yeah. So the U.S. company, uh, the owner here in the United States uh, hired me. So I was the first U.S. employee post him in the U.S. Got it. Okay. Um, So now operating in seven countries, I really want to talk to you about the whole team in India component because Years ago, lots of companies seemed to be outsourcing to India. It seemed to be really the first big place where people tended to mostly outsource to. And now it's become, you know, a lot in Eastern Europe, a lot in the Philippines. The trend in the last five years has has almost been now down into Latin America as well. What are some of the... And I've been to India five times. I love it. I'm obsessed with the place. Um, What is it that 
that makes it work with the teams in India? How do you most successfully work with the people over there, you know, in the tech roles and the support roles and even in like the leadership roles? Because there's some brilliant individuals. There are. And obviously, you know, the amount of uh, technical excellence and capabilities and just the, the sheer quantity of people who want to be in that field is just ungodly, right? So it's, it's a great resource to have. I think the difference between this and, let's say, uh, past lives I've had is that you have a leadership on both sides. So the communication gets shrunk. You don't have to have, you know, this laborious, overburdensome emails back and forth and, you know, kind of random things to kind of keep things in line. So when, you know, person A here talks to person B there, they understand the mission, the vision, the alignment. It's one one team. It's not that there's this outsourced arm that just does tech stuff. It's that there's one team. They just happen to do most of the engineering. We might do some other stuff here. So it's really sort of just twisting the script and not treating it as, hey, there's this tech arm. More as we're one team, we might have different timelines. We might have different operating hours, but we're still focused and running on the same particular mission. I think that's sort of the differentiating factor. I've seen this in the past. It was more of a there's these 500 folks, they're out there, they're doing stuff, but they're not part of the conversation. If you're not a part of the conversation, you're kind of missing half the mojo. Yeah. Okay. So you just touched on, I think, one of the most critical parts of the business. You didn't even use the, the term, but it's around culture, right? When you really have that strong company culture, everything emerges from there. So what's the secret on the kind of how do you get tactical about keeping it as one team? What are the specific things you do to make them feel both sides that we're on the same team? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I think certainly being kind of table stakes, you know, being cognizant of time zones, cultural differences, ways of communication, you know, certain norms, that's sort of just at the gate, you have to have that. Uh, the second is, you know, paralleling your communication efforts. So let's have those important, you know, team sharing meetings in the morning. Let's provide the the tooling and process to facilitate communication uh, in an asynchronous manner, depending on the type of teams. So affording the different teams the, the advances that we have in technology and process to allow them to work as one team, even when the time zones are, are disjointed. Um, in addition, I, I like the, you know, we use the open door policy. I think it's kind of like losses luster from a naming point of view, but just allow people to just talk to someone, right? If you talk to Nancy or Bob or Prakash or Sue, just slap them and have a conversation. Don't ask my permission. Don't ask if it's okay. Just have the, what is the bad thing that can happen? Two right. humans talking. You know, if anything, you made a friend or you know what they do and don't do, right? So just, just go out, talk, hunt, search, especially in a startup. You can't be handheld. You have to be able to find the resources you need, you know, understand what they are. If they're missing, go create them yourself, put your name on it, say thank you, add to the pile. I like that a lot. So on the connecting with people, and I think this is not even so much, you know, U.S., India or U.S. over seven countries, but virtually every company today has become a hybrid. Some people in office, some are remote. And then, you know, obviously, clearly with post-COVID, it's just blown the doors off this concept. How do you build the relationships with people when we are so remote? Can you give us, because you guys are you know, operating in seven countries, you have to do that. And your mindset is to do that. Is Slack enough? Do you fly people in to, to meet with each other? Like, do you get together on Zoom and run fun events together? What are the things that you do there? I think certainly it depends on the country. I think there's always room for improvement. So I'll, I'll say what I believe. I think there's always ways to, to still make it better. And also depends on the number of people. If only one person in a country, it's really hard to ensure that you have that alignment sometimes. Um, in the U.S., we're remote. We're about 30-something different states. So we do the whole you know, Zoom, the sessions, the games, all that kind of stuff. Um, very hard to fly people from seven countries or even from 30 states. And that would be a, a tremendous you know, budget right there. 
what you try to you try to have the events online. You try to have the communication in terms of you know newsletters that goes out, information about different teams, celebrating wins, even if they're small wins. You know, having that channel uh, collaboration. You know, sharing the mission, uh, ensuring that that communication kind of brings everyone. Right? It's not like it's this country versus that country. It's we're all working together. And then in certain instances, bringing the different countries together for those joint meetings, whether it's a, a fireside chat or it's you know a holiday celebration trying to mix and match. But I'll be honest, I mean, the way we communicate and the way we have meetings, we never really think about it in different countries. The, the biggest rub is probably just the time zone. You know, where is this person with time zone point of view? When you get in the call, you're just solving the business problem, right? It doesn't matter where you are, you're all together to solve that particular problem. So the country part does, I think, fade away a little bit. Yeah, I think I've been living globally now for the last 26 months. We've been in 41 countries in the last 26 months, largely in the wow. Middle East and Asia as well, in Europe. Um, I think everyone outside of North America is very used to working in lots of time zones and Americans are starting to get used to it now, right? Time, time scroller is my like go-to app. I just, I'm using it constantly to figure <laughs> out, you know, what time is it really when I want to be talking to people. You spoke about the ways of communication and I think you're talking there about just the way that different cultures communicate and, and different countries communicate. Can you give us a couple of, of secrets like, or just things that you've learned over the years as to how to work with people and, and what other countries do you work in with Cyware? Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, we're primarily in the United States and India. Uh, we also do have Canada. Uh, we have the Middle East, Dubai. We have Singapore, Australia, UK. Um, so we really do kind of get around from the, from the time zone point of view. My best practice, again, you know, I can't say it's followed 100% of the time, but I like to ensure that meetings have a purpose. You know, why are we actually talking? And when you walk away, what are people going to actually do from that conversation? And I think that's key. You know, in certain cultures, you might just say X, Y, and Z, and it's done. Sometimes it might be a little confusion or it might be a yes, it doesn't mean a yes, or no, that doesn't mean a no. So it's best to just be clear for everybody. We came in to answer these five things. We walked out, we've got these 10 things. These 10 things were assigned to these people. These are the dates. Let's go knock it down and, you know, get these things over with. I think that's general, whether in one country or for 100 countries, um, people talk. We have meetings, we converse, we have conversations. But if there's no point to it or there's no net result of it, you know, how much do we just spend? I mean, I've seen meetings of looking at people's average, you know, headcount, you know, fully in. I'm like, that was like a $20,000 meeting that accomplished nothing. Right. Was it worth it? You know, can we, can we translate? And I actually saw in the, in the news a few months ago, some company actually built their own little uh, Google widget that they add onto the calendar. And they right. back into that, which the, the fully weighted cost of an individual, and like, this meeting will cost you X. Like, do you really want to have it? We should all have that. I mean, that is a phenomenal point to just kind of bring home the, the monetary portion of, is this meeting worth it? And do we actually accomplish something from it? Yeah. Years ago, I wrote a book called Meetings Suck. And it was a, a book that every employee at every company is supposed to read to teach them how to unsuck meetings. And it teaches you how to run meetings, but also how to show up and participate in meetings as an attendee. And it was about 20 years ago when I was the COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We had about 2,000 employees system-wide. At the time, we only had about 200 at our head office. And I had a team meeting, like a town hall, and I pulled all the employees together. And I, I did it in the wrong way, but I kind of gave everybody shit and showed them on a whiteboard how much our meetings were costing us right down to our daily huddle. We, we had a seven-minute all-company meeting, and, and I just showed them the cost of that seven minutes. And it wasn't in a, we're wasting time. It was, let's take this seven minutes seriously. Like, we're investing a lot of money when you take that seven mm -hmm. minutes over 220 operating days times the number of people there, times the two minutes on each side just to stop what you're doing and walk to the meeting and come back. There's a lot of time invested. And I wish companies would, would kind of understand that more. 
It's funny how you mentioned the communication. The first time I ever realized that countries and cultures communicate differently was in 1991 in India. And I asked this woman, I was standing on a street and I kind of pointed in a certain direction. I said, is this where, you know, X, Y, Z is? And she just kind of nodded her head. And she just didn't want to be seen as not knowing or as stupid. So she just nodded for me. And then an Indian later told me, no, you just ask the question, but you keep your hands in your pocket and you say, which way is it to the place? And if they don't answer, then, then, you know, the the answer I was like, gosh, I don't, I've never seen that in Canada. I mean, there are certain cultures that, you know, are just purposely naturally nicer, right? They always want to have the positive reply. And sometimes in business, you you need the, the yes or the no, right? So it kind of creates a challenge at some points. So you just touched on something there that I want to ask about as well is I think one of the core roles of the COO or the second in command is to be able to say no to the CEO. It is to be able to say, I disagree, or we're making a mistake, or I think you are doing something wrong and to somehow do it in a safe way. Like, you know, it's like the emperor's new suit, right? Everyone knows the king is naked, but there's only the three-year-old boy that said, but the king has no clothes. How do you artfully say no or tell the CEO they're making a mistake? Do you have a way that you do that? You know, I've never used this uh, description before, but I kind of want to go with it like this. You know, we all probably did some sales in our days, maybe even just some, some door knocking, right? Door knocking is pretty rough. You get a lot of doors slammed on your face. Your nose gets a little smaller. I think sometimes you have to go into that conversation pretending like you're the door knocker, right? You might get the world's worst reply. But you know you did the right thing. You had to say it. Uh, I think it's so much of that. You, you want to share. You want to be respectful. You want to include, you know, what the other party may or may not be thinking and how they think. But sometimes you have to just say, "This doesn't smell right for these reasons." Uh, more so, I think, as you mature in your role from from our side, you have to also understand that you may go down a path that you don't agree with. You you may take the path that you know is going to wind up in a giant fireball at the end. Um, you weren't. You've documented. You've tried to elicit all the reasons. But at least you you shared that ahead of time and you had the opportunity to have the conversation. You don't always get to win it, but you shared it. Yeah, you've got some really good insights around this stuff. I want to know what some insights you can share around some of your growth. Because, you know, coming from a company where you were very early, I mean, you said first employee in North America. So I'm guessing you were in the first dozen or 15 employees globally, or or was it? We, we did have a team of about 50 or so in India making a product. And then I was the first here on the U.S., yeah. Okay, so even from 50 to 250 employees globally now, what's been some of the change that you've seen over the you know over the years and how have you had to adapt as a as a leader? Yes, I mean in the in the beginning, you know, having had, you know, no one else here on the on the US side, you're just flipping your role hat every 10 minutes, right? You're going from IT to finance to to ops to sales. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of, you know, all over the map. Um and you're constantly building, you're rolling out this this constant new things added. Over the time, you know, when you get past, let's say, you're one and three quarter, two and a quarter, give or take, you start to move into, okay, let's slow down for a second. How do we ensure the process is correct? Is the process kind of going throughout the right people? Is there communication involved? Are all the right parties part of the table for the conversation? Uh, how is the collaboration going? And I think that you move into less of the building so much and more as what I enjoy, I think, is, is more of that glue. So I, I consider ourselves as, you know, super listeners, right? We're involved in all these conversations that may not even make sense for us. And we just kind of collect all this random information ahead, like just massive, you know, database. Uh, and then when we go into a conversation, we're pulling out all these tidbits that most people don't correlate together. So you realize, you know, Sam for finance said he wants to go golfing. Uh, Mike from sales said he wants to go to the movies. And you realize both of them actually mean they want to go have a burger, but they can't say it to each other, right? They have no way to communicate. And we step in and say, hey, guys, hey, girls, like, you know, this is what you meant. This is what you said. Did you mean this? And like, 
Oh, yeah, we did. So you're kind of that kind of integrator and communicator and kind of glue that brings people together. And then from the from the culture and collaboration part, you know, not in a placating way, but I think ops folks need to be everyone's friend. You know, you need to be able to just have a nice conversation, be able to go along things in a smooth way. So that way, when something negative does happen, you have that mutual respect where you can say this was absolutely wrong, right? This this was a problem. And you're not trying to be mean to the person, but you have the respect of each other to say, I got to call you out on this. You know, we, we have a situation here. Uh, let's let's try to resolve this. Okay, so you just touched on something. I, I covered this in, in my book. My newest book is called The Second in Command. And when I wrote the book, one of the, the, the sections that I honed in on was the, the core role or a real core role of every second in command is to be the person who can integrate all the different functional areas in the silos to break down the silos, right? As I think it was Pat Lencioni talked about um, silos, politics, and turf wars. And even if there's not turf wars, even if everybody's getting along, we often have these silos happening in the company where the head of finance is obsessed with finance. The head of marketing is obsessed with, with marketing. And the role of the second in command is for us to be obsessed with the company. And to get all of those different functional heads talking and communicating and collaborating and kind of the forming, storming, norming, performing model. Hey there, Cameron here. Are you enjoying the show thus far? We're going to get right back to it in a sec, but just let me ask you a quick question. Are you a COO or a second in command tasked with helping the company hit and exceed its growth goals? Having spent many decades of my life dedicated to this role, I know one of the secrets of growth is to surround yourself with like-minded people, also pushing and striving to go where you want to go. It's why as a listener to this podcast, I want to officially invite you to the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. We're the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. When you're a part of this peer group, you'll get access to unprecedented support, guidance, and resources to grow your company's bottom line, improve your ability to streamline processes, connect with other top seconds in command to assist you and bring out your greatest potential, and so much more. Go to www.cooalliance.com to see if you qualify. It's where you can also see other members and the results of the program, as well as our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if the group can be the right fit for you. Once again, it's www.cooalliance.com. Now back to the show. Do you have any secrets on getting these different functional areas to communicate better, to communicate proactively, to debate in a really good, healthy way for the good of the organization? Can you walk us through some things there or some thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'll take it from two parts. I think one is from the operator's part and then two is from trying to you know do the people change. You know, From the operator's part, I think that we have to consistently reframe our story in the way that would be best received by the listening party. You know, you all want to get to X, right? You all have the same mission. You all want to get to the same place. But how finance wants to get there might be different than marketing or sales or CS. You know, you have to kind of have a different path. 
So you're constantly, you know, sort of putting on your sales and marketing hat internally and reselling that vision, that process change, that modification, that collaboration alteration. Um, so each party understands it from their point of view and says, yes, at the end of the day, we're all getting to the same point, but we got there for different reasons. And that's okay. And that's part of just people. We all have different desires. As you said, some people are focused on one versus the other. How do you bring them all to the same place at the end? From uh, getting people to collaborate more, you know, that's always going to be those individuals who don't, right? Those that just kind of want to rub the wrong way. Um, but I think as trying to be sort of the the nice kid in the sandbox, you know, sharing maybe some hints. Hey, so-and-so from this team, you know that so-and-so from that team is thinking of it this way. So have you considered that? Maybe not. Okay, so maybe we can approach it this way. Okay, so we might be involved in all these backdoor conversations that never see the light of day. It might even look like we're not doing anything. We're just kind of like having these chats, kind of having these situations to try to solve the mission. At the end of the day, like you said, we're not focused on one team. We're focused on the business. Is the business doing better? Are we moving things forward? We're not looking to be told that, hey, you did a great job. You moved it forward. We're looking to kind of move the pieces in the back to allow that to occur in whatever machination that happens to be. I like that a lot. In the role that you're in, you know, in, in operations in general, companies talk a lot about, you know, firing the bottom performers and firing the, you know, cultural misfits, et cetera, hiring the cultural cancers in your organization. Jim Collins talks about getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus. And I've never even asked this question before, but what do you think shows us where a functional head, like the leader of a business area, is the wrong person? What are the things that we should be on, on the lookout for to know whether it's the head of a business area is causing the problems? And it's not necessarily the five or 50 or 500 people below them that we have to get rid of, but it's the leader. Matt, there's, there's several things. I think most important is to not make the judgment so quick. You know, you, you have to take a moment and step back, maybe in private, maybe in silence, and just kind of consider the situation, right? So I think, you know, in, our, in the early days, maybe we're all kind of want to say, oh, we're right, we have the answer, you know, kind of spit the answer out and kind of move forward. I think as you get older and you do this more, you sit back and say, I, I might just pass on this one, right? I'm not going to say a comment. Yeah, I'm going to go back, let the juices flow, maybe I'm going to sleep on it, and I'm going to come back and kind of weave those pieces together to kind of see what that larger story is. What is actually happening? What is the root cause? I think that's an, an important part. Uh, is it the people, the technology, the processes, the individual? Um, I think some signs go that the individual may not be correct. I mean, again, if, if you see the entire team having the same issues from a performance point of view, from a conversation point of view, you constantly hear this name kind of being uttered. You know, you want to stop it before, let's say, the cancer spreads through the organization. Uh, in my opinion, one wrong person at the right point in the hierarchy uh, could absolutely crush an organization of almost any size, right? Because it propagates and uh, yep. it's almost endless. Yep. And uh, that is palpable, right? Especially if you look at teams that let's say revenue facing, they see all that information, they know the dirty laundry, they know how things are going. Uh, it's very easy to understand where those handoffs between different departments to put to, between different heads uh, have more friction and identifying sort of maybe what individual or, or process gap happens to be causing it. Love that. All right. Now, at the very beginning, when you were telling me a little bit about Cyware, and I want to ask this question, and I'll come back into more around you know the day to day operations. But did I hear you right that something about your software or your your, your product helps companies break down silos? 
Yes. So, you know, from a communication point of view, and I'll kind of go a little more, a little more technical here, threat data comes in the form of feeds, you know, information out there that is something a company should be paying attention from a threat point of view. Uh, that data can then be uh, bi-directionally enhanced in the platform where they add other data to it to make it for a turn from data to intelligence. Now, imagine that was sent through email, right? What would your team, your security team do with another thousand emails per day? It's just a thousand emails. They can't really sort it. So this is focused just on the threat aspect, allowing teams, networks, vendors, partners, all throughout the network of networks to collaborate and share this threat data to make that entire network stronger. So you're not just making your organization stronger. You're making the, the teams within your organization stronger. They're sharing that same information and bi-directionally enhancing it. And then they're also being able to share that information within a network of networks. So it's both a, hey, my entity is getting better, and then the opportunity for other entities or other sharing organizations to get better together, all in the premise of being more secure. I like this a lot. All right. I want to go back again in the ops side and ask a question around some of the growth challenges. You got to the company and had just completed its seed round. Yes. You've now done three rounds of funding since then to a Series C. How much has the company raised? And if you can if you can disclose that, how much has the company raised? And then what have been some of the changes and challenges that, that funding has raised? I mean, there's obviously the good stuff. You got more cash, you can hire more people. But what are some of the challenges that come with going through those funding rounds? Yes, I mean, having personally done the due diligence aspects, you know, we all know the amount of pain and fun those thousand questions uh, can be. Uh, so we did three rounds after the C. That combined with the seed, and that that is you know online public information, uh, that would be a total of seventy three million uh, total from a funding point of view. Um, you know, I think I think certain challenges always that that expectation, right? There's the expectation of those who provided the funds, the expectation of the board, expectation of leaders, but also the expectation of your employees. You know, are you managing the expectations properly across the spectrum of stakeholders, where all their expectations may not always be congruent. Um, and that comes down to the communication, the vision, the strategy, the sharing, uh, and also the truthful execution, right? You can have the best vision and strategy and presentation, but then if your day-to-day actions uh, are divergent to what you just said in that pretty slide deck, it's meaningless. So you have to bring it all together because humans are smart, right? We're hiring very smart people. They're doing very technical, challenging positions. Um, you have to be truthful in those conversations and be able to bring people in together to that shared understanding of why they're spending their time in this activity. They could spend the time in any activity, right? There's lots of things that people can do. Why do they want to do this thing? Can you speak a little bit to the due diligence side when, you know, the investors are asking for more and I mean, they just seem to keep asking. It's like, God, it's like this never ending, like, where do you come up with all these questions of things that you need? Do you artfully push back or do we just surrender to it and keep getting more and more and more and giving more and more and more until they stop asking? Or do we bury them with information so they don't want any more from us? I think that kind of goes back to sort of a an operations team sort of data collection mechanism, right? So in this particular entity, um, besides other things, I also own all of contracts and all of legal. So I'm very involved in all of those particular parts of the business. So learning from the first one, at least here, you know, capturing that metadata is, is very key. So taking the time during each particular step of an agreement or, or a relationship to extract the things that might be needed later on, to extract them from a contract point of view, from a relationship point of view, from a sales point of view, and having that data there and using that data not only just internally to flow throughout the systems, but allowing it to be reportable. So I can see measurable results between, let's say, A, B, and C 
for how the data was collected, what was the actual pain for myself, for my teams to be able to generate those replies. And as you get more mature, and if you build on a framework where we're we're always audit ready, we're always able to have that data available, um, those cycles become less painful. I mean, granted, yes, there's a lot of questions. There could be, you know, needing to explain something six different ways to get to the same concept. Um, That's part of the game. Um, But if you can prepare your data, I think the data is really key. If you have to make the data up later by, you know, not make up, I mean, if you have to go and hunt for the data, right, and kind of produce it in in a tableized form, it's too late, right? You have to have that ahead of time. So if you're a small company, let's say that you're a 20 person company and you know that over the next three to five years, you're going to start embarking on raising money or positioning the company to sell, et cetera. What are some of the systems you would put in place to make your life easier down the road? Or would you bother, like, does it become unbearing if you're not raising the money? Like, is it worth doing all the work if you're like, does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, you know, I certainly, I think my reply is going to be uh, polarized and depend on the person, right? Some will say, look, I don't need this right now. So that spend, people or tooling is, is not needed. But then there's that future version of them that will say, hey, you know, I really wished I knew that spend. I think it comes down to the relationship. Do, do they trust our advice? Do they trust our analysis mm-hmm. of what will save them in the future and how that overall will be, you know, a lower cost for the company? I obviously strongly believe in, in tooling. We have a tremendous amount of tooling here. I've used a tremendous amount of tooling in, in my professional life. Stay away from loose files, Excel, docs, you know, things that are not able to be tangibly stored, archived, reportable, you know, invest in a solid CRM, invest in a solid CLM, uh, invest in solid, you know, expense management and, and finance tools. You know, those tools will naturally cost you more out of the gate, right? You will spend more money. But if you count the amount of time you save from the physical headcount, having those conversations, the checks and balances, the back and forth, you've saved multiples every single day over the course of the tooling. So I think just anywhere where you have a gap that the company would need to be concerned about, that's where it starts. So customer data, CRM, financial data, expense management, get your, you know, your, your Nest Week system in place. All those things help to, let's say, chokehold the level of risk the company has by instantiating tooling that will maintain that data in an organized way and start to have those processes, you know, sort of tie in together to, to create that sort of puzzle pattern. Yeah, two two very like kind of obvious examples of this. One would be, you know, if we had all of our processes documented in Google Docs or Google Sheets, that's one way. But if we also had all of our processes in a software called Process Street, and they can just log in and see every single process in one platform, oh, okay, we get it. And then secondly, I remember when I was running my first company back in 1989, I had 12 employees, I was 20 years old. All of my accounting was just a bunch of receipts in, in envelopes. You know, I had... The receipts for like every every category was a different envelope. And that was fine. That worked. My bookkeeper could work from that. I want to talk a little bit about the the job recs. You mentioned at one point you had a hundred different job recs out there. Yeah. What are some of your best hiring and I guess recruiting, hiring, and onboarding systems in those three areas? How do you get lots of applications for these job recs? How do you interview and select people? And then once you've got them, do you have any systems for onboarding? Yes, I think I'll start with just saying it's it's hard. It's not it's not an easy thing. You know, in, in any company, it's hard. But you know, for a startup, you, you sort of need to strike that goal every single time, right? The opportunity for error becomes much less because the impact is much greater. So it's, it's much more challenging to kind of bring that person in. Tooling aside, I think you need to have some internal thought beforehand, right? Take a moment. What do you need the person to do? 
What do you need them to do over that 30, 60, 90? Who will they work with? Do they actually have a home here? Do they actually have a reason for being? Not that you had a knee-jerk idea, I need this particular role tomorrow, um, but do you really need this person to come in and do you have a place? Do they have a vision? Do they have a, a way to, to be productive here? Pass that bar first. I think it's also important that my personal favorite is I would give my team, now that you know we had a, a team in the early days we didn't, just spitball an audio recording. I'll talk for 10, 20 minutes about what I like and don't like about a particular role. What companies I think will be great, what companies I think will not be great, what background, what type of person, what type of attitude, what type of experience. And they can keep listening to that. So it's much better than some stack email, you know, a few hundred words and you're done. They now hear the person, the hiring manager, physically saying all the characteristics they desire. And now each recruiter can go in their head, listen to it at their own time, gel it, whatever way works best for them, doesn't really matter to me, and have a much better interpretation of what you want that person to do. Um, I think that part of the communication is key. Tooling, yes, you need in ATS, um, I can't say I'm entirely sold on ATS making the decision making for you. We're not there yet. I think that uh, it's still a human aspect involved in understanding if that person is a good fit, especially for a complicated role. But you want to be able to also ensure that you are uh, keeping friends throughout the process, right? Let people know if they're not accepted, if they're not moving forward. Let people know how the conversation is going um, because that will come back and bite you in the end, right? Whether it's a negative review or potentially negative you know, employee experience. From the minute you meet somebody, they could be a potential employee. Let's start that conversation cleanly. Let's start in a friendly fashion. Let's have good communication. Let's have solid clarity. Let's be clear in what we want, what you want, what I want, what the company wants. I think it's it's a very people skill heavy personalization type of activity. Personally, I've not seen any kind of significant automation yet, right? You can you can absolutely yeah. automate lots of things, but if you have to get those right people right now and you cannot make a mistake, it's still a very heavy effort from a manual point of view. I like that a lot. You mentioned something and no one's ever said this on 330 episodes that I can recall. And I've been obsessed with this concept probably my whole life is do we even need to hire them, right? Like, it blows me away that a company will spend a full two or three hours debating a $100,000 marketing campaign. And yet this mid-level manager comes in and says, oh, we need to hire another person X. And we go, okay, go do it. I mean, that was a 12-second decision on a $100,000 expense for the next three or four years. Are you in your fucking mind? Like, we don't, you shouldn't be making decisions that quickly. And sadly, most mid-level managers' solution to every problem is hire more people. And that's, that's often never the solution. How do you artfully say, no, we don't need to hire? Or how do you get the managers and leaders to know we don't need to, to even come in with a request to hire this person? I think you have to ask questions. You know, we kind of uh, become that sort of the, uh, the counselor, right? You bring in the black couch, let's have a chat. What's bothering you? How can we get to a remedy here? Um, it just comes down to communication, you know, trying to understand, you know, okay, that's great. You, you need, uh, let's say you need a solution architect. What are they going to do? Who are they going to work with? What kind of skills do they need? Do they work clients, internal, external? Are they going to work people on this current team? Who do they report to? You know, is it going to be a heavy management structure? If you're going to keep adding people to the same person, can they even be managed properly? Are they going to just be a, a black hole and sit in the corner? Sure. I'm trying to flesh out again operations folks we try to we sort of think of this world of questions all the things that can go wrong all the different things that something is going to be touched by a particular action trying to just have a conversation around let's say our own thoughts you know coming from the point of view of maybe we don't understand the situation properly uh, maybe please educate us you know let's let's kind of understand the thought patterns in your head 
And then we can share the thought patterns in our head. And maybe we would open up concepts that maybe they didn't think about. Oh, I didn't think about this part. Or maybe that's right. They wouldn't have anyone to report to. Or we don't even have the tooling for them to be operational. It would be another three quarters till we even could have that person do the job we want. Um, those kind of things can can nicely make the conversation be all good for sometimes. Super interesting. You've really got some solid skills. I mean, it's obvious when when we listen to you and you got some of the questions. We've started an organization about six years ago called the COO Alliance. We have a network of second commands from 17 countries that are members, and they're always working on growing their skills and their confidence. What have you done over the years to grow your skill sets um, as a leader and as a second command? Yeah, I, I really like that question. Uh, I am a huge proponent thinking that you should constantly be learning stuff, right? You know, you you have to not the whole like obtain education, always be learning, but just just be curious. So your job's going to change, the world's going to change, things going to be different. I personally just read a lot of random stuff. I'll be honest, it's not any particular thing. I am part of way too many communities, way too many email lists. I try to keep them down to be you know humanly possible. But if something strikes me, I see a, a white paper or a PDF in some community that seems attractive. I'm like, ah, that's interesting. I will speed read it. I'll look at it. Uh, I'll find webinars and videos that are interesting. And, you know, I can listen to it at 2x, 2.5x, you know, cut down the time, get the gist of the information, yeah. uh, have random conversations with people, people who I don't even know if we really have anything in common. And you you tend to just kind of pick up these things so that they use this tool in that way. They did this that way. They, they had this thing. And you come back with these thoughts and these patterns and you're trying to manipulate things together that you honestly would not have done if you just sat there doing your job, right? Like, Yes, you did your job that is today's job, but you may be entirely useless tomorrow. You know, you won't be able to to grow and to bring any innovation into the company if you're just doing this. So you did a great job on your current job. Cut yourself in the back. It's great. But can you innovate for what that job will be tomorrow, for what the company needs you to do tomorrow? And for that, I think you have to go out and hunt and get new information. I love that. You just touched on something that I think is a core behavioral trait that we need to hire more leaders who have this and that's the ability to be curious and the desire to stay curious because they become they become self-driven learners they're not waiting for a quarterly personal development plan for somebody to teach them what they have to go learn they're always learning they're showing up learning it's kind of like when you're green you're growing when you're ripe you're rotting they're just hungry to keep just because it's kind of fun to learn right which is great Yes. And, and today, I mean, these days, I mean, let's be honest, there's practically probably nothing that you want to learn that isn't out there in some form for free. Even if it's not the best resource, you could probably find everything, whether it's an online learning, a community, a white paper, a PDF, a YouTube video. I mean, there's just so much information out there to say that I can't learn something or I don't have the resources. As long as you have an internet connection, you can probably figure out a way to, to understand that information to a point to pass the full test. Well, and that's why why so many students these days are getting kind of disillusioned with universities. It doesn't make a whole lot of financial sense if they understand basic math, the ROI of going to university for four years and coming up with all this debt when all the information is free online and they can condense the amount of time they're learning. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with post-secondary education for people in the arts and business. I want to go back to the 21, 22-year-old, Joe, and give yourself some advice what advice would you give the younger you that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known when you're 21 or 22? And certainly, I think, uh, you know, in an earlier version of me, I, I was a computer science major, right? So I'm, I'm a hardcore tech from the start. So I was doing development, enterprise architecture, all that kind of fun stuff. In, in that world, you don't talk with people. You talk with your teammates. You don't have like, a conversation like this would have never happened, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a networking event would have never happened. And as you move past that into other forms of business, this becomes incredibly uh, necessary for, for growth, both for the company and for yourself professionally. I think for a younger version, I would have said to, to get out there more, have more conversations, meet more people, network more, and kind of build that professional community 
around you. Uh, I think it's easier these days. There's a lot more professional community, a lot more knowledge around the concept. But if I went back to an earlier day, I think that would have been one of the things that would have been important. I love that. Joe Rillo, the SVP of Ops for Cyware. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Uh, thank you very much for having me here, Cameron. It was great. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.